Would you pray with me, please? Be with us this morning, God. Quiet our hearts. May our spirits be still, that we might hear from you. Amen. He'd become untouchable by pity. So J.R.R. Tolkien describes Frodo Baggins after Frodo has spent time wearing the ring of Mordor. On account of the remarkable power that the ring gives to him, Tolkien tells us, Frodo becomes, quote, untouchable by pity. Now, having said that, hear now these words from the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah. Oh, Jerusalem, you defiling, oppressive city, your officials are roaring lions and your judges are evening wolves. So Zephaniah proclaims in, of all places, Jerusalem. Talk about a surefire way to make friends and influence people. Yes, a prophet from Jerusalem in the late 7th century BCE, Zephaniah was prophesying some 50 years after the prophet Micah, whom we focused on last week, and some 100 years after the prophets Amos and Hosea, with whom we began this Lenten series on the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And Zephaniah's chief preoccupation as a prophet, like those prophets before him, was with the corruptive tendencies of human sin and with the various disruptions of shalom that such human sin gives rise to. That said, though, for Zephaniah, this preoccupation was principally aimed at the corruption of Israel's leaders. For these Israelite leaders, he believed, were particularly corrupt. And so it is that he says, Oh, Jerusalem, the capital city, Oh, Jerusalem, you defiling, oppressive city, your officials are roaring lions and your judges are evening wolves. Well, with that sharp rebuke in mind, Let's fast forward some 700 years from the time of Zephaniah to the time of Jesus, where in Luke chapter 23, Jesus has just been brought to trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And here, after asking Jesus a few questions, Pilate acknowledges that he sees no reason to convict Jesus. I find no basis for an accusation against this man, he says. And significantly, were there not a mob of people demanding a verdict different than this? And even more significantly, were that mob not being led by and stoked by the most powerful men in all of Judea? Well, then that verdict would have no doubt been the final verdict. But alas... There was a mob of people demanding a different verdict. And that mob was being led and stoked by the most powerful men in all of Judea. 
And so that being the case, watch now what Pontius Pilate, the one whose signet ring has granted him the power of life and death, watch now what Pontius Pilate chooses to do. Seeing the injustice and the falsehood of the proceeding, Pilate wants to let Jesus go. Pilate wants to do the right thing, but then seeing what an uprising this would cause, seeing what negative political ripples this would create, seeing what an overall inconvenience this would be for him, Pilate instead decides to punt. And thus he sends Jesus to the Judean king, Herod. Well, this is in fact precisely what people like Herod and all of the Judean leaders had wanted to avoid. Oh sure, they all wanted Jesus eliminated, for Jesus' teachings and actions were far too subversive for their own liking and comfortability. But they wanted to outsource this problem to the Romans so as to distance themselves from the backlash that Jesus' execution would no doubt incite. Instead, though, Pilate had sent the responsibility back to them, back to Herod. And so Herod now, like Pilate before him, asked Jesus some questions himself. And like with Pilate, nothing that Jesus has been charged with before Herod and nothing that Jesus says in response to these charges can verily convict him of any form of criminality. And so Herod, like Pilate, also seeing the injustice of all of this, also seeing the falsehood of it all, but also feeling the pressure of defending his kingdom and of appeasing the many who have been agitated by Jesus' actions and teachings, Herod now, with his own signet ring on his finger, he outsources the job now too, which is to say Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And so, in sum, a dirty deed needs to be done, but neither man wants to do it himself. And both feel the stab of regret, both see the injustice of what's taking place, but neither can resist the threat to their own power, neither can resist the pull towards self-preservation. And so, as Luke 23, 12 so hauntingly says, and I quote, that same day Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. End quote. In other words, a roaring lion and an evening wolf came together that day so as to make a meal out of the innocent Jesus. Leading us back now to Zephaniah. One of the things most incisive about Zephaniah's short work of prophecy, it's only three chapters, is how expertly he pulls a rhetorical bait and switch. Which is to say, Zephaniah spends the first two-thirds of his time rebuking the corruption of the foreign peoples surrounding Judea. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Ethiopians, the folks from Gaza and Ashdod and Ekron, all of these people and their leaders in particular are the first to receive rebuke from Zephaniah. And taking the bait, the leaders of Judah were no doubt pleased with and roused by these opening words from Zephaniah. 
Yes, the Judean leaders had no doubt cheered. Those leaders are evil. Those leaders are corrupt. Those leaders do use their power in violent and unjust ways. But then no sooner has Zephaniah laid bare the corruption of these foreign leaders, then suddenly he pulls the proverbial switch. And he begins to do the same to Judah's leaders, but only worse. We too, he thunders. For remember, Zephaniah is a court prophet, also someone trusted with power and privilege. We too, he thunders, are as bad as they are. In fact, he says, we are worse, for we're supposed to know better. But instead, he goes on, our kings rig the system to fatten their bellies. And our judges render verdicts to appease our leaders. And our priests exploit the poor for their offerings. And our prophets speak syrupy words that our rulers want to hear. And the rest of us look the other way, lest our own pockets or bellies or comfort be threatened. There is no justice. There is no fairness. Oh, Jerusalem, he says, you defiling, oppressive city. Zephaniah is one of the prophets whom I find it most difficult to read. And if we're reading him faithfully and honestly, I think we ought all to find Zephaniah a little difficult to read. And I say that because being as relatively comfortable and privileged as we here all are, we too know ourselves to be among those with a certain amount of power. Sure, we may not be Judean kings or Roman governors, but in the grand scheme of things, we here are a pretty powerful and comfortable lot. And so while some prophets leave it at a, as a at, excuse me, while some prophets leave it at a rebuke of the way others misuse their power, and of how others have been corrupted by their privilege, Zephaniah oh so inconveniently reminds people like us that we too are given to misusing and or to being corrupted by the power and the privilege that we have been given. Thus, while we could read Zephaniah and train our critical eye like many do on, say, the corruptions of political leaders that we don't appreciate, and there are many, or on the gross extravagances of certain socialites and cultural influencers, and man, are they gross in some cases, or on the failures of the justice system as it pertains to the people or the groups whom we are most disposed to defending, or to the theological abuses that we see coming from different corners of the church or from various powerful pulpits, yes, while we could read Zephaniah, and train our critical eye on misuses and corruptions such as these and on so many others besides, a more honest and unflinching read of Zephaniah would demand that we train such a critical eye on ourselves. What do I mean, you ask? 
Well, I mean all sorts of things. I mean, we should think about the way that doing things like, say, advocating for the homeless, something that in theory we all know is right and just, we should think about how something like this inevitably brings with it a population of people who can make us, and particularly can make local leaders, uncomfortable. And of how we too often, therefore, simply idealize the idea of helping the homeless while we distance and insulate ourselves from any meaningful action. I mean, we should think about the way that opportunities have arisen in our lives and the way that opportunities continue to arise in our lives when, say, a business or a personal opportunity materializes, but our benefiting from it depends on our looking the other way on something unscrupulous or unethical or unfair or just plain wrong and on how easy it is to look the other way because we want whatever that thing is that's on offer. I mean, we should think about those simple everyday moments when, say, we're sitting around the table with friends or family or colleagues and someone makes an insensitive joke or a derogatory remark, something blatantly racist or sexist or homophobic or just plain mean-spirited, and we all know it's wrong, but we just sit silently by because we don't want to be ostracized by or excluded from the group. Yes, I mean all of these things and so many others besides, but most specifically, I simply mean that before we begin rebuking the Moabites and the Ammonites of our own day, which is to say before we begin rebuking all of those people out there who fail to look out for and to treat and to judge and to respond to others fairly, I mean we should first take stock of whether we don't have some internal house cleaning of our own that needs some attention and some repentance. Or put differently still, I simply mean that before we begin condemning the Pilots and the Herods of the world for becoming friends of expedience, that perhaps we should think carefully about how often the Pilots and the Herods of the world come sidling up to us, asking us to be friends too. Yes, make no mistake, dear family, there are plenty of times when people like us find ourselves party to or aware of something wrong or unjust or unfair happening around us. And when everything within us cries out to do something about it, to speak up, to say something, but then the cost-benefit analysis begins in our own minds and in our own hearts. And or we're quietly reminded of what we might lose by doing or saying the right thing. And then rather than speak up or take action, we instead sit quietly by. Or worse, we become actively complicit in allowing such distortions of shalom to continue apace. Oh, it happens, dear family. We all know it. It happens every single Which leads us back finally to Frodo Baggins and to the Ring of Mordor. Throughout the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien is at pains to show us that the problem is not power per se, but it's how difficult it is to wield power fairly and justly and honestly and selflessly. 
in this novel, Frodo Baggins, the very model of empathy and humility and self-giving, he is himself rendered untouchable by pity. It's such a great line. He is rendered untouchable by pity on the ring's account. And in the end, this is what Zephaniah is trying to draw Israel's attention to and in the end this is what Pilate and Herod and Luke 23 serve for us as examples of the capacity of power and privilege and comfort if we're not mindful and careful and honest to render us as human beings untouchable by pity consider Pilate knew that what he was doing was wrong Herod knew that what he was doing was wrong. But having wielded power long enough, they'd ultimately become untouchable by pity. And that, to the point of this sermon, is what power and privilege can and does do to us all. For if it can happen to Frodo Baggins, Tolkien is telling us, it can and does happen to us all. Just as Zephaniah is telling us that if it can happen to them out there, whoever they happen to be, then we best well recognize that it can and that it does happen to us too. Yes, the thing that makes Zephaniah so tough to read is that Zephaniah reminds us not only that lions and wolves are afoot in this broken, sinful world, but reminds us that we too, if not mindful and on guard, can very well become such lions and wolves ourselves. Which means that 2,700 years later, Zephaniah asks us to consider the rings on our own fingers and to reflect on the power and the privilege and the comfort that we ourselves enjoy and then challenges us to ask ourselves whether given all of this, we can still be touched by pity or not. Which is a powerful and incisive question. For there is an enormous amount of corruption and injustice, an enormous amount of unfairness and exploitation happening not just out there, but happening right here at home, happening right here inside. And proper pity, which is to say a heart rightly aimed at shalom, would take action to put a stop to such things. And so the question is, will we be touched by such things and respond in a meaningful way? Or will we make friends with the lions and the wolves of the world so as to protect our own privilege and comfort? Either way, Zephaniah reminds us, come the day of the Lord, we will all have to give an account of our actions. We will all have to give an account of how touched or how untouched by pity we have actually been. So what, dear family, come that day will our account be? And all God's people said,